May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So I wonder how you're getting on. How are you feeling? How are your anxiety levels? I have to admit that, uh, well, I'm feeling quite anxious, quite stressed. Stressed about what Christmas might look like this year. Stressed about what church will look look like around Christmas, before Christmas and into the new year. Stressed about when COVID will arrive, although last night's news might relieve some of that. And what all of that will mean for church and life and, well, everything. And I'm stressed by some of the media reporting around mandates and lockdowns and all that stuff. I suspect I spend a little too much time reading about this and all of that adds to my feeling anxious. I was talking to someone, my spiritual director, last week and Uh, She referred to an article she'd read uh, by a New Zealand trauma therapist who talked about us all in New Zealand and around the world uh, suffering from COVID trauma. We are all suffering COVID trauma in some form or other. Life has changed. Church has changed. The things that were uh, kind of in the centre of our lives and gave shape to our lives lives are all changing and will probably change again and again. It'll all keep changing. It's too unpredictable, too uncertain. And then layered over all of that are issues about climate change and COP26 and the big question of can we change our ways and give hope to future generation generations because time is running out all of which is just more stress, more anxiety, anxiety, more trauma. What this guy was saying was uh, that stress and anxiety are natural reactions to all that we are experiencing. So in essence, what his article was saying was we need to acknowledge that. And we need to then give ourselves permission to care for ourselves and for each other. These are stressful times. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to give ourselves permission to look after ourselves and not pretend that this is normal and just try to carry on as normal. But in the midst of all of this, I also wonder if what I give my attention to adds to my anxiety and stress and trauma? And, well, the short answer is yes. We have spent the last year looking on and off at Mark's gospel. And I've said this a few times, but uh, Mark's whole gospel is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son. The story of this good news is ongoing. Mark never anticipated that his gospel would be read as the story. He only ever wanted it to be the beginning of the good news. Uh, And so his gospel, as I've said, as he wrote it, as we have it, ends at verse 18 and um, uh, verse 8 of chapter 16, and uh, which is a crazy place to finish because the resurrection has barely begun. 
uh, it ends with Mary Magdalene running back to the disciples, afraid and not willing to tell anyone. Not a great place to finish. But the idea is from some scholars that Mark then wanted the church that he was writing for, which tradition tells us is Rome, to tell their own stories of the experience of the resurrected Christ. And then from that, to tell their own stories of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son. What does that look like in Rome? And so we, uh, too, are invited to tell our own stories because this ongoing story of the good news includes you and me. And as I have said repeatedly before, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1 is the central key to Mark's gospel. So this is it here on the screen. Uh, this is the, the CEB, the Common English Version, with a slight addition from me. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Let that blow your mind and change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. Reading Mark is an invitation to have our minds blown by God, about God, and what God is up to in Jesus and what God is up to in the world through Jesus. And it's an it's about inviting others to also have their minds blown so that they too can join and trust this ongoing story of good news. So I wonder, as I said in the theme, in the pew sheet, in what ways has God blown our minds over this last year? In what ways has God blown our minds this year? Today was our last reading from Mark. Uh, next week is, uh, as I said before the service, um, Aotearoa Sunday, Stir Up Sunday, Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday before Advent. And so we have a reading from not in Mark. Uh, so it'll be another two and a bit years before we return to Mark's wonderful story. And I've got to say, it's, it kind of feels like a bit of a hairy note to finish on. Uh, and it's one of those readings that those of us in the kind of more traditional liberal side of the church really don't know what to do with. So in the story, uh, despite Jesus deriding the temple and the Jerus uh, the temple elite and the Jerusalem elite for their corruption, uh, so uh, last week we had the story of the widow's might, uh, which begins with Jesus teaching about. The, the temple elite and the Jerusalem elite in general are uh, being corrupt and thieving from the poor and living, even taking the houses off widows. And then we have the story uh, as he sits in the temple watching some of those elite uh, out of their surplus, giving what seems like gener generously, but really is just out of their excess. And then we have one of those widows who has lost her house to those who have just put all that money in, giving all that she has left to the temple. So Jesus derides these elites for their corruption, this corruption which has led to the impoverishment of so many, including that widow. That widow. Uh, despite that, Jesus' disciples still are overawed by Herod's spectacular rebuild of the temple, which by all accounts was spectacular. It was one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It was something to behold. 
but it wasn't just the temple that that um, overawed them. It was also the vision held in these impressive stones that shaped how they saw the reign of God, which was all about power and might, the strong, the wealthy. And they kept missing to what Jesus was pointing to, the widows, the orphans, the poorest. Their minds were yet to be blown. And so Mark records Jesus' warning against placing too much store in all of this. It's generally thought that Mark's gospel was written either during or shortly after the Jewish rebellion from 66 to 70 CE. The Jewish rebellion that led to the destruction of the the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the slaughter and enslavement of hundreds of thousands of Jews from across uh, Judea and Galilee. For all who followed the way of Christ, both Jewish and Gentile, this was a profoundly traumatic time, and it felt like the end of time. Their certainties were failing. Even for Gentile Christians, the temple was a symbol of God's presence on amongst the people of this world. It was one of the things that stood for the permanence of God, the power of God, the awesomeness of God. And here it was about to fall, about to be destroyed, or in ruins, not one stone left upon another. And they were left grasping for all that this meant and how to respond. So Jesus uh, Mark's Jesus uses the standard apocalyptic style. So what the words here and after this uh, are not unique to Jesus and they're not unique to Mark. Um, they appear in similar forms in uh, Matthew and Luke. But this style of writing goes back to Daniel, uh, which was written probably about 200 years or parts of Daniel 200 years earlier, particularly the apocalyptic parts, uh, and appears in other um, writings of that period and also in Revelation. The style was about the end of time, but it also was subversive writing, and it warned against, well, placing certainty in anything except God. Even even symbols of God, like the temple. And it certainly warned against placing uh, your hope and certainty in things like empire and emperors and the elites of the world. Instead, the apocalyptic style of literature invites us to be open to all that God is up to, making new futures possible. So here we are in our own time of unraveling. And as I reflect on these words, I'm aware of the time that I have given to COVID news, good and bad, and how that results in heightened stress levels. Now, I can't ignore that news. Uh, To ignore that news uh, might set me on a trail down a rabbit hole where I don't want to go. So I do have to pay a little bit of attention to that news. But I wonder, I wonder, how am I leaving space to experience God's creative life-giving presence in all of this? And how I am making space to take part in the new future being made possible in all of this. 
And I wonder where we might look for God's creative, life-giving presence. Today, we heard the story of Hannah. In the Orthodox Church, she is called Saint Hannah. And we recited her, her song as our psalm. Hannah was an unimportant woman, and she couldn't bear a son. And for that, she was mocked mercilessly by the other wife. But she was also a faithful woman who prayed in ways that confused Eli the priest. She wasn't rich. She wasn't powerful. She wasn't particularly useful. She couldn't bear children. She was the complete opposite of all Herod's temple said was said was important. Despite that, she is the key point in the story of God's people. The story of God's work through the covenants, renewing humanity, restoring creation, because her firstborn son is Samuel, the prophet, the judge, the kingmaker. It is her her faithfulness and courage that allows her to offer her child as to Eli, to grow up with Eli, to be as a Nazarite forever. So a Nazarite was someone who never had their hair cut, so he's probably one of the first Rastas, and uh, he never had alcoholic drink. Um, so he was special. He was different. He was anchored in the way of God. But that only happens because of Hannah. And as we approach Advent and Christmas, we need to remember that she acts as a forerunner to both Elizabeth and Mary. Mary's song will echo Hannah's, both declaring the unique holiness of God that can be depended on at all times, the God who restores just situations and the God who works through the poor and the disregarded. So today we listen to Hannah's story. And I wonder how she helps us look for God's creative, life-giving presence in our time. But Hannah is not alone. The story of God's people often hinges on the actions of faithful women, faithful women like Moses' mother and sister. There is no Moses without them. Esther, Naomi and Ruth, who we looked at last week, Elizabeth and Mary and Mary Magdalene, and there are many other pivotal women in the story of God. And down the centuries, seemingly unimportant women have continued to play significant roles in the story of God's reign of justice and peace. Within the Franciscan tradition, over the centuries, there's been a lot said about Francis and much, much less said about Chiara, Claire. But over the last 60 years or so, especially since Vatican II, 
there's been a lot of work done on this well when she began this journey was a young woman who belonged to a very powerful family and she defied that family. In particular, she defied the powerful men of that family who had a clear plan of who she was to marry for the benefit of their family. She defied them and joined Francis living the gospel. And over the years, she supported Francis in his darkest days and helped him write his final rule, the rule that was eventually agreed to and approved by the Pope. And she held on to that vision, defying bishops and cardinals and popes and wrote her own rule. In defiance of uh, the bishop, the... the um, the name of the bishop, uh, Hugolino, uh, who was the overseeing bishop, that's not the correct term, but that'll do for now, and uh, uh, who had written his own rule for all the new uh, communities of women that were forming, and he called that rule uh, the rule of the community of San Damiano, and he wanted Claire to accept that rule and to live that rule, and she said, no, I will not live that rule because that is not in the spirit of Francis, and she wrote her own rule, and just before she died, the Pope approved that rule and she became the first woman to write a rule for religious for a religious community and it's only now that her pivotal role in the franciscan story is told she helped francis hold true to his vision and she held true to that vision herself but that but god's creative life-giving presence continued through here through her through those sisters and through how the the brothers lived it was always there, if just not seen by the male historians. Later this week, we will remember the first third order Franciscan saint, Saint Elizabeth of Hungary. And yes, she was high born. Uh, she came from a royal family. And yes, she married into the royal, the royal family of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, but she lived a radical lifestyle of God's compassion and love for all, so radical that when her husband died, sadly, at a very young age, her brother-in-law, who then became uh, next in line for the Holy Roman, uh, to be Holy Roman Emperor, uh, cast her out, uh, kept the son, uh, cast her out with her other children, uh, and she continued to live that radical lifestyle amongst the poorest in the community that she lived, in the spirit of Francis. It's a deeply sad story. She was used and abused by men, eventually dying essentially of starvation under the, the rigours of the life imposed on her by her male spiritual director. But it is a story that still inspires people today, her compassion, her love, living in the spirit of Francis. God's creative life-giving presence was in her and continues through her story. Later in the week, we will celebrate Hilda of Whitby, who worked to build God's church through her double monastery in Whitby. Uh, she established other religious communities. She trained priests. She taught scripture. But she is best known for hosting the Synod of Whitby in 663-664 to decide whether, well, it's usually talked about being the British church, but it was really only the church 
in Northumbria would follow the Celtic way or the Roman way. It is seen as a pivotal moment in the story of the British church. The decision to follow the Roman practice brought the Northumbrian church into line with Rome. And although Hilda didn't agree with that decision, in humility, she accepted that decision. And uh, uh, enforced that decision amongst her communities. Her wisdom and generosity continues to shape Christianity in the UK and around the world today. There are many who remember her story and allow that story to shape their life. She is an icon of God's creative, life-giving presence. So as we struggle with all that is happening in our world today, I go back to my first questions and I wonder, what is it that we currently pay attention to? And what are the stories we might pay attention to that give life, that give hope? And where do we see God's creative, life-giving presence in the world today and in New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand today? Or to go back to the question I ask in the pew sheet, what blows our minds and gives hope? So I invite us to just pause for a moment to reflect on those questions.